Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When I was six years old, my mum became pregnant with my sister and I was left on my own quite a bit with a family member while she was going to antenatal classes with another family member. And it was during that time that I unfortunately became victim to many years of childhood sexual abuse. When this came out, um, he was the only person who I actually saw any emotion from. He actually went and smashed his grave to, to pieces. He actually said to me that if he had been alive, he would have killed him with his own hands and he would have happily gone to prison for it. Gambling addiction was the worst part of your life when you've just talked about the horrendous childhood that, that you went through. This just, it just spiralled out of control, Raphael. Like, at my worst, I was spending a thousand pound a week. I then um, couldn't afford to pay my bills, so I had to have um, an IVA, which is an involuntary action agreement. It's like one step from bankruptcy, so I couldn't pay my bills. Um, I didn't even see that as a negative. I actually saw it as a positive, because I thought I'm able to get rid of all this debt have a low monthly payment, but I'm still earning money that I can still continue to gamble with. It's all about creating a luxurious space that keeps you there. When when I set up this girl, it was on the back of me becoming ready to share my childhood story. And I almost became fascinated by, if this is my life and this is my story, and I've been able to sort of hold face for so many years, there must be other women and men out there that are the same. Welcome to the Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. This podcast focuses on the theme of Second Chance, exploring who deserves it, who has the authority to grant it, and what it means. We speak with people from diverse backgrounds, including those who have been given second chances and those who some might argue don't deserve them. Bianca Colclough, the founder of This Girl Community, has opened up about her own struggles with gambling addiction. Despite being unknown to many close to her, 
This addiction stemmed from years of sexual abuse by a family member and dealing with her parents' difficult divorce. She has also experienced her own divorce and two miscarriages. In an effort to help other women share their own stories and overcome their traumas, Bianca now brings women together to build self-worth and businesses step by step. Her company offers consulting and networking to support wellness and development. Bianca's gambling problems started small and quickly became unmanageable as she sought to escape her own reality. Her hope is that by sharing her story, others will be inspired to come forward and seek help in overcoming their own addictions. No matter what the addiction may be, whether it's related to alcohol, food, drugs, sex, cleanliness or gambling, asking for help is a courageous step towards healing. Remember that you are not alone on this journey and there is great strength in seeking support. I'm going to jump straight in because I know time is of essence for everyone these days. I I wanted to start because I've read and seen stuff on your website that, you know, today you're an empowered woman who is empowering other women in, in their chosen field and you have an organization that you know networks for women to take responsibility or empower themselves etc which is something i hope you will talk about um later on but in order to get to that place i know that you've been on quite a challenging journey to reach that point of success where you are today you've been on quite a challenging journey so let me take you back to your childhood which is, from what I understand, was the beginning of some traumas in your life that you had to deal with on this journey. Where did you grow up and, and what was life like for you as, as a young girl? So happy, normal upbringing, really. Um, I've been brought up all my life in Stoke-on-Trent, Staffordshire. Um, mum and dad had me very young. I think my mum was only 17 when, when she had me. Um, so yeah, fairly fairly normal upbringing, Raphael. Really, nothing particularly out of the ordinary. Um, no real history of anything in our family that would have sort of posed any risk or potential worry for what was to come. I guess. And uh, um, um, and what made up your family? Was it just you and your parents? Um, so there was myself and then my sister, who's younger than me. Um, she didn't come along until I was seven. Um, and yeah, there was just me and me and my mum and my dad. And how would you describe yourself as a child? You say you had a normal childhood without any kind of problems up until a certain point, but um, what what was you like as a young girl? Very much a fantasist. So I've always loved sort of drawing, writing. I still do that today. Um, I've never been one to play with dolls. I'm quite a tomboy and always have been. Um, but yeah, from, from a very young age, I've, I've been somebody that would sort of create stories in my head and then reenact them in the garden and then sort of play you know in my own head I would be a very happy-go-lucky child really and um, it's hard isn't it when you have to think back to what your childhood was like I'm, I'm I find it really difficult having memories of of my childhood some people can regurgitate you know moments in their childhood that have stuck in their mind and we all have that but some people are really good at reflecting on and recollecting that their childhoods you mentioned that you know, everything was normal uh, uh, and no one was aware about what was to become. What what become, Bianca? 
When I was six years old, my mum became pregnant with my sister and I was left on my own quite a bit with a family member while she was going to antenatal classes with another family member. And it was during that time that I unfortunately became victim to many years of sexual abuse, childhood sexual abuse. Um, this started very innocently, um, as I, I mentioned uh, on my website, where I was playing a game where you put a marble in one in one hand or the other and you have to guess which hand the marble was in. And this particular individual um, chose to use that game as a form of um, abusing me. And that's when it started, really, because the marble started to be hidden in certain other parts of my body. And, um, yeah, unfortunately, that became... What I didn't ever realise at the time would be what has unfortunately shaped most of my childhood. So the, the any happy memories I have were taken away from that moment forward. And you were how old at the time? I was six. And how long did this abuse go on for? Um, it went on until I was 12 years old and that was only because he passed away. So I fear that that would have carried on. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't just myself. It was two other family members who were children as well that became victim to him. Um, but I was the eldest. And, and this person who came into your life when you were son, so, so young and, and, and vulnerable was able to take advantage of you and other family members. How... I, I hesitate to say how is that allowed to happen, but how did it happen to the point where, as a young child, you were not able or were able to sort of bring this to the attention of your parents or other people around you who should have been and could have been protecting you? Yeah, you know, this is a question I've asked myself as a woman so many times, Raphael, because it, it angers me to think in my own mind why I wasn't strong enough to say anything because my personality now can't really understand that. Um, the whole the whole basis of the abuse was around money so I, I would be seen to be rewarded by money for doing an act um, whether that was something that unfortunately was happening to me um, I also became victim to having to abuse the, the other people and I was paid for that as well um, so yeah I, I later realised just how bad this was but when you're young and this is somebody that is a position of trust and you see them at family gatherings and everybody loves them they are seen as a figurehead in in society you know they work for a school um as a child you you just think that what is happening to you is normal I, I never ever once in my head and I, I stand by this I ever thought that what was happening to me was wrong and, and I, I find that very difficult to be so honest and say that, but it, it's true. I, I never realised that what was happening to me was actually not right until I got older. And, and that's normal, isn't it, I suppose, in those circumstances or not in those circumstances? Because as young children, we accept what adults are telling us is the right and the wrong thing. And if you are exposed to something in the home and it's private, you don't take that. So it's not on you, it never is on anybody to be aware of what is happening to you. You mentioned that this individual also encouraged you or made you do things to your other family members as well. Yeah, this is something I've had extreme trauma with throughout my life that I've had to come to terms with because one of them was male and the other one was, was female and this is what's haunted me most throughout my life um, where I guess 
as I've researched and I've, uh, I voluntarily spoke to the police when I had my counselling because it actually made me feel that I had become a perpetrator. Um, I realise obviously now as a child I was absolutely a victim and you know that was completely confirmed by the police that I had done nothing wrong and I was completely coerced by this person which doesn't make it any easier if I can be honest because I I almost felt that I was complicit in something but I absolutely know I wasn't I was a victim and it was something that I was forced to do as a young child I didn't realize that what I was doing was wrong probably because the other two never said anything either so you know it was the three of us all experiencing the same thing but nobody ever actually told anybody what was happening I, I, yeah. I really appreciate your, your honesty and your candidness around what, what happened because I can imagine it's not for anybody uh, uh, an easy thing to talk about even many years down the line when you have become a stronger person and recognise and understand whether it's through counselling or, or other means that the trauma that you went through. Can I ask, since those years, have you come together with the other two and had discussions or kind of you know played it out in order to understand the victims that you were um with one of them yes um with the male um i'm very close to him as a family member we've sort of spoken about everything and i feel that we've got healing between us because we've been able to share both our mutual journeys but also things that had happened to him when i wasn't there which um i think for any male to have to experience that, you know, I accept my own trauma is horrific in its own sense, but from a male perspective, um, yeah, it, it really, really hurts me to see him struggling in a different way that I have. With the other person, no, um, it's something that breaks my heart because I've never actually had that opportunity to sit down with them and talk to them about it um, and it's caused a lot of fracture in our family um, I don't have any contact with this person because they they don't know how to come to terms with what's happened to them and I guess they've used me as a fuel of fire to put blame on because the perpetrator is no longer alive and that's something I, I really find difficult because I miss that person terribly. And during this time it's a difficult question because there's no real clear answer to it but I suppose during this time when it was going on and it went on for six years where were your parents where were your um, relatives parents where were other adults or people that might have been in a position and this is important for others that are going through this experience or are unaware that they're going through this experience not that children will be listening to this but other people who might be able to recognize what was going on to you so it's, it's not a blame game. It's not putting blame on anybody for not being able to witness or, uh, or being vigilant enough to spot what was going on to you and your relatives. But I, I do want to know if there is an answer to, to that question. You know, where were the adults around you and your relatives and, and why were they not able to, to spot what you were suffering and going through? This is probably something I'm never going to get the answer to because I've tried to have this conversation with certain people and some are shockingly defensive of the individual that did this and saying that they were ill and they were poorly and, you know, tried to defend it. I think that in another circumstance, because it was their father that was doing this, because it was a grandparent that did this to me, um, I don't think they can 
process it in their own head that this actually went on and I think looking back I just feel that this person was so clever in coercing the control that he had over the three of us as children my parents were young Raphael you know I I look back and they were out partying you know they were just young kids themselves and you know I'm 42 now and I've only just had children the thought of having a child when I was 17 I couldn't even begin to imagine so I'm understanding from that perspective that you know suddenly I came along my parents were kids themselves so I think I I suppose I just got put upon the grandparents which most children do when you know they they have young parents and I I guess you know they, they were just very clever at covering it up and because I was never appearing sad or withdrawn um I'm guessing that's why nothing ever was picked up. I've tried to find this answer myself and I don't know. Again, you know, it's the 80s as well. It was a whole different era where, I don't know, I hear so much now that so much was going on like this that has only really become uncovered in in later generations. And and you mentioned that it, it came to an end when the individual died. So there is a closure but also there's not a closure in terms of justice being done because that perpetrator was not brought to justice in the the sense that the criminal justice system is is where people find some solace in somebody being punished for the wrong that they did against somebody else how how do you move on from that bianca where you've never been through that process where the individual who did what they did to you is is not just punished but that there is recognition because as you just said those adults around you have still not come to terms with what happened or are finding excuses to explain what happened, which in my book is wrong. But but how do you move forward from this knowing that there was never a, a kind of hell to account moment? So I don't know if there's any notoriety or anything in what I'm about to say, but I don't know if there's an element of Stockholm Syndrome that I suffer with because I never actually hated the person that did this to me until I was older because I realised just the damage they'd done to me and how much they'd shaped the person that I'd become and some of my actions that I'll talk about shortly, you know, with with the next part of my story. Um, Where the hate came in and the justice for me was with my father. Me and my dad are really, really close. He's a typical guy from Stoke. You know, he, he loves the football. He loves the beer. He's tattooed. You know, he loves his heavy metal music. He's a he's a bloke's bloke. And one of the things I don't think I've ever been able to get over is that my dad was never able to see justice for what happened to me and the other family members. When this came out, um, he was the only person who I actually saw any emotion from. He actually went and smashed his grave to to pieces um and he actually said he wanted to dig him up and literally like it it was his way of coping with what had happened um and he actually said to me that if he had been alive he would have killed him with his own hands and he would have happily gone to prison for it because it would have been his way of of getting some justice because the the justice system doesn't do enough for predatory people like him and i think He's lived his life, you know, him and I are very, very close. He has lived his life sort of with his own mental health issues of not being able to do anything to protect us. And that's the bit that saddens me the most because I, I can kind of deal with it in my own head. But it's seen the, the ripple of destruction that this one person has caused in my family I don't necessarily think that's focused enough on with people who've been victims of childhood sexual 
abuse. There is a focus on the individual and there absolutely should be, but the ripple effect it has on breaking and fracturing families because of everybody's perceptions is far, far more worrying and, and mentally distressing to me than, than my own experience. That's so interesting and it's totally understandable how your father reacted, you know, in his ignorance in the nicest possible way of not knowing what was going on then to discover what was going on and as you say as a man's man probably felt it struggled as you say with not being able to have protected you in the way that a father likes to protect his children or or anybody that they feel that they can protect. How have you managed to move forward build the bridges between because without going into the details of who's who but it, it sounds like it was so ingrained within your family that as you say it fractured your relationships and your father's relationships um, how are you able to build those bridges or have you allowed those bridges that have been broken to remain broken because you have no intention uh, of mending what can't be mended um, in the absence of the perpetrator um, but also in the reaction of some of your relatives who have not really come to terms or accepted the suffering that you and your your father and and others have gone through I think I've sort of aligned myself to people as I've gotten older that I know I have my back and understand my journey um I've moved away from a number of a number of family members because I, I don't see them adding any value in supporting me. They didn't want to support me back then, still don't want to support me now. I've never had an opportunity to sit down and ever tell my story to any member of my family. Not one person has ever actually sat me down and said, Bianca, will you tell me what happened? Um, and I find that quite selfish because it was brushed under the carpet when I tried to tell my story as a child. And being a mother now myself, I understand the damage that that brushing under the carpet has caused me as I've moved into my adult life and some of the very bad decisions and things that I've made throughout my life that have made me who I am today. Um, yeah I just choose to remove myself now but it isn't through lack of trying you know I don't have any relationship with my mother because of this um and I find that really sad but I don't think she will accept and come to terms with the person that wants to tell her the story she doesn't want to hear it and and I find that really strange that a mother wouldn't want to protect their child um but that's you know my dad is my mom and he's my dad and you know he's somebody that I only focus my time on because he's the one person that has stood by me, but still hasn't heard my story. <laughs> he doesn't want to listen. So it's very difficult to keep a lot of stuff in your head. It must be really hard for those like your father who, who wants to do the most they can, but it's terrifying to think that at, at the point that you were most vulnerable, they were not, uh, you know, well, he was unable to, to protect you. You talked about how that experience and what you went through shaped the person that you went on to become. What person did you go on to become, Bianca? So through, through my teens and sort of into my early 20s, I realised that I had become sort of almost multiplicity in my personalities. I was finding that I was quite sexualised and a lot of the behaviour that I portrayed, I was sort of creating an image of myself that is what I believed men wanted to see. So, you know, I, I was 
heavily made up and I was wearing low cut tops and sort of presenting myself in a very different way to how I felt in my own self. I actually worked as an exotic dancer for a number of years because I, I felt there was an element of control that I had over men because I was taking money from them and they weren't giving and again I realize now that all of this comes back to my childhood trauma that I didn't have an understanding of money and men and sexualized behavior it's a common trait for women that have gone through childhood abuse um it was almost like I felt a power um to to do that and then yeah that that was quite a strange period in my life um what's very odd is that I actually had a very successful career throughout my life and I kind of broke the mould of what an abuse survivor typically typical patterns they would go along I actually held a successful career I was able to hold relationships you know where a lot of people can't I was told I couldn't have children by a family member from a very young age I guess it's because they kind of knew what was going on to me so I believed up until I was in my late 30s that I couldn't have children so the shock I felt when I actually got pregnant was a shock but it's all of those stigmatized beliefs that had come into my life growing up that sort of shaped this person that I'd become that working in sales I believed that in order to get a sale you had to wear the highest heels and the shortest skirt and it was just a very bizarre period in my life where I realized now as I reflect back on what I always class as my former self, that it was all because of what I'd experienced in my trauma. Everything lay back to that. Every part of my personality, everything that I'd become, the secrecy and the way I live my life, which leads on to sort of to the, the next chapter that I've never shared before that I'm choosing this platform today to talk about. Um, so... In 2009, I was on a night out with a friend and I went to, the night. The end of the night had finished and he said to me, shall we go to the casino because it's open till four in the morning? And I said, yeah, yeah, go on then, we'll, we'll go um, for, I've never been in one in my whole life. And I sat next to him and he put £20 in this machine and he won £50. And I thought, okay, that, that seems good like how has he just won that money from pressing a couple of buttons that was the beginning of the worst part of my life because money came into play again and I developed a terrible terrible gambling addiction which I now realize is because again of my relationship with money um, and that's what I wanted to use this platform Raphael to share today because there are very very few women in this country that speak about addiction related to gambling and especially people like me um so if if I'm okay to do so I'd love to share a, a bit about that journey as well and sort of what what that's meant for me in my life in the last sort of 12 years that that's um yeah well absolutely I mean thank you for 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 taking this opportunity and 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 wanting to share that part of your life it shocks me that you feel the gambling addiction was the worst part of your life when you've just talked about the horrendous childhood that that you went through and the challenges that that's thrown in front of you with your relationships with your family but as you say you know that then drove the character that you become in terms of the work that you did and the life before you go into the details about gambling, I just want to roll back on the point that you made there because 
as I was listening to you, I was thinking, given it shaped your character, not the, the child abuse, but the person that you become, um, you know, you took control of yourself, even though it was driven by money to some extent, and this kind of way you'd characterised yourself. Did you see it, Bianca, as a negative or a positive? Because was you building your character and the strength that has made you the woman that you are today? Because people reflect on their past experiences and that can shape the person that they are, even if those past experiences have been so negative and, as you say, would rightly traumatise people to end up becoming, you know, drug dependent because they want to, you know, drown their sorrows or alcohol. But would you say that in those teenage years and your young adulthood that it was a negative or, or a positive experience even though some of what you may have done was negative? I actually say positive Raphael and I speak of this a lot you know I feel that when people talk about some of the things I just have there should be an element of me feeling ashamed I actually felt really empowered I felt that in the career I was working in um, in, in sales and being very successful at what I was doing I was actually taking control of my life and I felt I'd lost some control over the decisions that were almost made for me as a child I felt that I was entering this period of my life where I was in control of who I was what I wanted to do I felt I was in control when I was selling in the industry I was working in you know I, I was very good at my job um, and that ended up sort of being a lot of what marked me from a mentorship perspective and a career perspective I, I feel that those skills I gained um I think what I do find negative from a reflection perspective is more so the the secrecy element and you know it, it was it was the fact that I was almost Bianca at home who was this quiet person that loved dogs and loves reading and loves nature then I was this person that went to work that got dressed up you know and went out to work in recruitment and I was great at what I did but then I was also this other person that was hiding this really dark past that I'd almost shut away somewhere in my head and never thought it was going to surface and that's my naivety that I now reflect back on that I wish I could have just told my younger self that this needs to be dealt with I just think that I just thought okay I've experienced this abuse when I was young that's okay now it's done I'm happy now and I never have to think about it, couldn't have been more wrong. And that's strongly why I believe the addiction came into play, because it was my whole psyche of trying to sort of understand what was going in my head that led me down the path that, that it did in 2009. But that's obvious, isn't it? Because when, like you say, you're trying to hide a secret, you take on a different persona and you're dressing up and going to work and pretending to be uh, another Bianca, Although it was Bianca, you, you know, the clothes don't change the feelings uh, and, the, you, you know, it might change your appearance, but it doesn't change the pain or the emotions that you felt positive or negatively. Um, so, so I get that. You want to share the struggle you had with, with addiction and it all started when you went along to this casino. Talk me through that story. So I, this particular night, as I mentioned, so I, I just literally watched my friend put some money in a machine. I never realised at the time that he was actually an addict because, you know, I, gambling, as with any addiction, people don't really speak about it. What I think makes gambling such a dangerous addiction is that it's silent. Um, and that's something, you know, I've, I've actively learned as I've gone through my, my trauma of this particular part of my journey. The next day I went to that casino again. Um, and as with most 
addicts how they start in the gambling world is of course I won you know it's um it's so if I'd have lost you know it's the same story maybe I wouldn't have gone back and back and back but I won and I just found the place a casino for anybody that's ever been in is somewhere that typically has no windows or it's very sort of dark in there um so there's no understanding of what time it is you completely lose sense of where you are you have people that are trained to get to know you look after you make you feel special bring you drinks but then remember what drink you want the next time you come in you get free food it's all about creating a luxurious space that keeps you there I love that because I didn't really ever feel like there was any part of my life where I felt belonging. Um, So when I was sat in the casino, there was this community of people, mainly women, um, at the slot machines. And I just felt safe there. I felt that I could just shut myself off from the world, sit at this machine, feeding money into it with absolutely no concept of what was actually what I was doing from a rational perspective but I was overtaken by this feeling of solace and serenity that I just felt really calm that was the dangerous side of it for me because I actually had the money to spend at that time so my my rationale behind my gambling was I had friends that would think nothing of going into a big department store and spending a thousand pound on a handbag why are they not persecuted, but I would be persecuted for spending a £1,000 in a casino? And that was my rationale for it. Um, and I would openly say this to people, and I, I did all through my addiction. Where I guess it became worse is that I started working from home. So I, I took a role um, in the same industry where I was working from home. Um, and I actually had two laptops. So I needed to be at home because I had to take calls and, and interview people. But for the eight hours I was doing my job, I would have my other laptop open with a gambling site and it would just be constantly on all day, spinning, spinning, spinning all day. And that would be my life. I'd be working and I'd have a um, an online casino next to me. This just It just spiralled out of control, Raphael. Like in my worst, I was spending £1,000 a week on you know literally any any penny I had I sold everything that I owned and I also sold things that my now ex-husband owned that he didn't know about um which shames me because I, I was just that desperate to find money I then couldn't afford to pay my bills so I had to have um, an IVA which is an involuntary action agreement it's like one step from bankruptcy so I couldn't pay my bills Um, I didn't even see that as a negative I actually saw it as a positive because I thought I'm able to get rid of all this debt have a low monthly payment but I'm still earning money that I can still continue to gamble with at the helm of it being its worst I was sort of traveling to different casinos across sort of Manchester Stoke Birmingham just so that they didn't keep wondering why I was in there all the time I would lie about where I was going so I would say I'm going out with friends but I wouldn't be spending any time with my friends because every waking second I could I'd be sat in the casino and I just loved it there I couldn't find in my head any reasoning why I shouldn't be doing it and this is what the horrible horrible thing of addiction is and I use the analogy for me Gambling addiction is glamorised so much. You know, you can watch anything on the TV. Football sponsors, TV programmes, daytime TV is sponsored by gambling. They're not sponsored by alcohol. They're not sponsored by cigarettes because, you know, those things are not deemed as societally accepted but you can turn on the tv now and i'll guarantee something will be sponsored by a gambling site it's so glamorized 
again, sorry, I was saying I use the analogy, if I sat in a casino for eight hours a day and then at the end of that day I've just lost a £1,000, I would have to get in my car, go home and cook dinner, sit on the settee, talk to my partner about his day and he would never, ever know about this addiction. If you sat and put a needle in your arm for eight hours straight or drank vodka for eight hours straight, you'd be dead. That's how serious a gambling addiction is and I don't genuinely feel that it is taken as seriously because it's a silent addiction. Um, Just because I'm not physically putting something in my body, the effects were the same. So my mental health just blew up because there was days when I would be at home and it would be like three o'clock in the morning and I knew I wouldn't I couldn't even afford to live I couldn't afford to put petrol in my car and I'd be sat on my phone getting payday loans out payday loans after payday loans just so that I could live and it's awful it's awful to to think that I lived that way Um, the analogy that you used about you know eight hours of alcohol or injecting yourself with with a drug like heroin for eight hours the, the, the physical consequences would be obvious to anyone that you have that addiction and they may seek to help you. But you're right in in that gambling is this secrecy. It, it's kind of something you can do quietly without people knowing. But given the depth to which you became addicted to, to gambling, uh, and you mentioned your husband, so you were married at, at, at the time, how were you able to hide that behavior from from someone how do people who are addicted to gambling uh, uh, how was you able to hide the reality of the amount of money you were spending the debt that was spiraling given that you were in a married relationship at the time and in those relationships you're supposed to be sharing everything and be aware of everything how was you able to to hide it Or, or was they aware of it but didn't recognize how serious the problem had become yeah, and th- this is a really good point. This is something I'd actually noted that I wanted to talk about. So he was aware that I gambled, but I think it was more recreational. I don't think he or anybody, you know, still to this day had any clue of how bad it was. I almost found that it became quite like a joke thing. So like, I'd go with, out with friends and they'd be like, oh, are we going to the casino? Am I going to sit at the casino with you now for four hours? And like my friend would fall asleep next to me and just... I'd be sat there until four, six o'clock in the morning just gambling. And I think it became very easy to sort of make a joke of it because it, I wasn't ever physically in pain. Or and, and I guess, you know, when I mentioned earlier this being a product of my childhood, my brain had been trained from a very young age to keep secrets very, very well. You know, I, I'm conditioned to hide things. I'm conditioned to be comfortable in not sharing. And that's a lot of self-development work I've done on myself, which sort of is why I created the business I have, because I got fed up of, of hiding who I really was. And I was ashamed internally, but angered that I'd been become a victim again to an addiction that had almost become my perpetrator again, because it was... It was making me keep a secret. It was making me feel ashamed. It was making me lie. And these are all traits that I now psychologically relate back to my childhood. Um, it isn't until you step away from that you realise how bad. I'll give you an example. So I, I would be sat in a casino 
And I, you're always going to win. It's always your next go. You know, if, oh, if I just put in £20 more, I'm going to win. I'm going to get a feature, which would give me free spins. That means I might win a jackpot. It's ridiculous. Um, and I remember sitting in the casino one day and I'd got no money, literally not a penny in my bank. Um, I'd wiped out the joint account as well. I'd take, taken money out of the joint account. Um, and I rang my dad and um, I told him I'd got a flat tyre. And I went outside at the casino, so it was noisy in the background, so it sounded like I was stood at the side of the road. And I said, Dad, I've got a flat tyre. Um, can you send me some money? I've got um, a guy on the way to do my tyre. Can you send me £200? Then he sent me £200. It was not for the tyre. I just went straight back into the casino and used the money there. And that was a regular thing. I would, I would say anything to anybody to try and get money so that I could gamble. And that disgusts me because that is not who I am. That is not what I stand for and what I believe in. But you are in a trance that gambling just takes you in a different zone completely. And you you, you always think you're going to win. And in my head, I was going to get that, that money off my dad. And then I was going to go in the casino and I was going to win. And I was going to wire it straight back to him. Of course I didn't. What, what's interesting, Bianca, people listening to this may be on that spiral themselves right now where they are going to casinos or other uh, facilities that allow them to use slot machines or gamble in some way and they're not recognising what you now know you didn't recognise at the time th th this idea of you, you know another £20 I'll win the jackpot but it never came I'm sure there were many occasions where you did win maybe not anywhere near as much as you were spending because that's the trick of the casinos and I don't understand it I'm not a gambler I never use casinos but 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 what what is that flip moment if you were talking to other people or people that are listening to this are thinking am I on the verge of becoming what Bianca became um, addicted to to slot machines and, and gambling and spending everything I own and what others are giving to me what is it that you've learned now that you think people need to to understand uh, I th this is something I am actively going to be spending the next sort of year and, and two sort of creating as part of my business because I think it's hugely underrepresented for women and I, I think the male gambling market is represented very well I think to support men with addiction because it's always linked back to sport bet there's a lot of there's a lot of stigma in gambling that it's men because they place bets they you know football bets right back to the pools back in the day when someone would come around to me and my dad's house you know to place a bet on the horses and the football and stuff where I think there's a huge stigma I feel is I don't think women in today's society feel that it's acceptable to talk about it because it's quite embarrassing um but it's astonishing just how many women are victim of gambling addiction because it's so easy and accessible to do on your phone on your laptop um whilst you're working like i did to go into the casino and feel part of a community where i found myself moving away from that is I, I don't know what it was because it wasn't about the money. I just stopped enjoying it. I just I think that the the transition I've gone through in my life over the last few years, I no longer feel I need that release. I have my release with my children, my partner. Um, I love my life now, you know, and that is, I think, for me, a, a sure way of me looking that 
every single person that I used to sit around in that casino, which were the same faces all the time. We knew everybody in there, but you would never speak to them outside of the casino. It was like you knew everybody by name, but if you pass them in a supermarket, you don't speak to them. It's like this hidden underworld. I now realise just how sad they must be in themselves and that there must be something they're harbouring. And I would love to use my voice to to help other women to say, you know, look, it's not embarrassing. There's nothing to be ashamed of just because it's not a physical addiction. You don't need to be in the shadows. You can talk about this. And I want to normalise that behaviour. Um, I appreciate the great work that's being done with the bigger commissions, your senses, your gang cares. They're, they're great, but they're not for real women like me that's, that there's something that to me, am I going to ring an 0800 number and start speaking to a stranger about my gambling addiction? Yeah, I might do, but I'll be straight back in the casino tomorrow. I need a real conversation with someone that's talking to me about lived experience, some of the things I've shared, and for them to know that, you know, I'm not in a gutter somewhere. I'm still living a life, you know, and I'm a normal person. I'm not I'm not this dirty person that's coming out of rehab who's been addicted to something and, you know, I'm I'm a mess. I'm just a normal functioning woman that's just gone through a bit of a a shitty time and life's thrown a few curveballs at me. But I want to show women that this is not to be... It needs to stop being glamorised. It really does. And I I need people to, to know that they can physically show the emotion that comes with a gambling addiction. And, and you talked and skirted over quite quickly how you reached the point where enough was enough, you weren't enjoying it anymore. But given the depth at which you'd sunk in terms of your gambling addiction, what would you say was the pivotal moment? What, what is the message that you want women who are in the same predicament as you was? What, what do they need to know? Because there was something, there must have been something that made you decide enough was enough and it wasn't because your bank account was empty because you found other ways to to get money to continue your your addiction um you'd been sat beside these people that you started to dislike or didn't want to be like um for 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 a long period of of time so what would you say was that moment that other people might be able to latch on to and find a different direction was it you know falling in love with someone developing a relationship knowing that you wanted to become a mother was there anything significant that that took you on a different trajectory yeah so probably a blend of, of each of those things so my partner is is my best friend you know I'm, I'm in a very good place in my life now and I felt that I no longer wanted to hide or lie to him um I don't we're very very transparent he knows all of my history my story everything I respect him too much to want to lie to him and I have never had that in my life before I've never I've never felt that security and love from somebody enough to want to do right by them and I've always felt like everybody was against me and I didn't really care what partners thought of me because I I didn't really treat them very well with my partner now I really really respect him becoming a parent my god that has changed my life I never thought I was going to be um once I became a mum in 2021 I had a little boy and then the year after I had a little girl um so congratulations pregnant twice in two years which is amazing and the thought of sitting in a casino for eight hours and missing any opportunity to see their beautiful faces, which sounds really cheesy and corny, 
it, nothing was worth that. You know, I've waited until my 40s to become a mum, never thinking I could be one. I am not going to sit and waste a penny of my money that I could be spending on my family and enjoying memories with them, putting it into a machine. And I developed a hatred for where I was. I started to resent going in there. I would have this attitude, well, I've got £300 to spend. If I lose £300, it doesn't matter because I never expected to win anyway. That £300 suddenly had value to me. It was not just a piece of paper. It was actually money that I could invest in my business. It was money that I could spend with my family. Um, And, yeah, I think having my business has completely transformed my mindset with money as well. So I value money so much more now. And, And I would say for anybody that's going through this journey, there's there's too many cliches, Raphael. You know, people will say things like, um, go go to rehab, pick up the phone and speak to somebody, ban yourself. It's not that easy. You know, it's not, yeah, I'll just go to the reception desk and ban myself. But guess what? The guy on reception has known me for 14, 10, 15 years. Hi, Bianca, how are you? Oh, I'll do it next time. And I'll just go back out to my car. It's not as easy as that. So I'm a realist and I think there's so much out there that sort of gives advice on what people need to do to stop gambling. They need they need to speak to somebody that's living that experience and the textbook answers don't work, you know. I banned myself from a casino locally and when I did this, this is word for word, the lady said, your your band's up in six months, Bianca, so we'll see you then. Now, where's the, the duty of care in that situation for somebody who clearly must know I have an addiction, um, but their way of, of advocating that is saying, we'll see you in six months. They make me a platinum card holder, which means I get anything that I ever could want when I go in there. It's all a nurturing and a grooming process to keep you in there. And it's it's just wrong. Something needs to change in the industry, it really does. Just one last question on that. What would you say you spent as opposed to what you won during the time that you were addicted? And how long did that addiction last? I would have months when I lost loads of money and then I would have a month when I'd have loads like there was a, a month like not last year the year before when I put about £10,000 into my bank which is great and obviously you celebrate those wins but you don't think of the £1,000 a week that you'd lost during all the but gamblers don't think that way they only think about their last win and what you also don't think about is the fact that the majority of that ten grand probably went back in again because the hit the high that you get when you win you think wow I'll go and I want that again And that's the horrible cycle that you can get yourself into. So overall, obviously, I I must be severely down because I I would never have had to have taken out an IVA and not be able to pay my bills. But there were some months when I had what I used to call dirty money in my bank. This, This money was never there for long. It was dirty money. So I would either gamble it back away or I'd have to spend it quickly book a holiday, spend it on my family because it was guilt money for me. So, you know, it was like the money that shouldn't be there. So I do say with a gambling addiction, in a lot of cases, it's not about the money. It was never about the money for me. Um, It was about the feeling of serenity and calm when I was in there that I could just sit and not speak to anybody from eight hours. It was like like an escapism. Well, look, I I wish you well on that that quest to make... You, you know, gambling companies, casinos and other organisations more aware of, of the problems that women face who become addicted to, to slot machines. And it sounds like 
that quest can be successful given that there is not enough attention being given in that direction. And it also sounds like, you know, the roller coaster of a life that you've had up until now has had its highs as, as well as its lows. But you now have a, a consultancy business which is driven to empower women or at least create a space where women who take on a persona that's not really them. This is what I read, but you can, you know, give me more details. But it felt like it was one of those organizations that as you said you put on the high heels because you thought it was your sexuality that would get the deal rather than or, or in addition to your skills to to argue or or present or or, or or sell something tell me a little bit about the the business that has come out of everything that you, the journey that you've been on today and I think it's called the girl consultancy right yeah this girl yeah this so, girl consultancy yeah. So when when I set up this girl, it was on the back of me becoming ready to share my childhood story. And I almost became fascinated by if this is my life and this is my story and I've been able to sort of hold face for so many years, there must be other women and men out there that are the same. And I almost became fascinated by this psychological journey of wanting to find other women that had a story. So when I created my strapline, this girl has a story, let's start with yours. I just simply reached out to women and I asked them to tell me a little bit about themselves and what had shaped who they've become today. Um, and I've never met in the three and a half years I've run the business, I've never met anybody that doesn't have a story. Every single person I meet has a story. And everybody kind of says the same things about their journeys, albeit their stories are completely different. We all kind of come together with a single meaning that as time has gone by and as we've matured in age and mindset and not giving a damn so much about what people think of us, our voice becomes our superpower and that is what this girl is for me. It was, I'm not ashamed of my past, I don't want to be defined by my past, but I want other women to come on this journey with me and know that if you need help, you don't have to just go to your GP and be handed antidepressants. There are other ways and in those other ways is finding women who have found their voice as I have in various different avenues whether it's domestic violence whether it's grief whether it's uh, parenting and allowing those women to share their story and allow other women to come forward whether it's to listen to share to write if they don't want to use their voice you know we get a lot of ladies that write a letter their, their story through through a creative story that way and my whole business was just built out of a social project really I just sort of put this out during lockdown to see whether anybody else would be as open as I would and we're now a successful business that runs a, a membership platform for women to support their personal and professional wellness um, we have a consultancy business so we work with a number of different businesses who let's say their idea of well-being might be putting a bowl of fruit at the end of the desk you know so my, my mindset is like let's have a real talk here about what's going on in a business we're not asking you to change the world but we're asking you to listen I guess that's what I didn't have so my mission now is to work with businesses use my voice but have this amazing tribe of women around me that can help other people share their stories without judgment because I think 
women still fear judgment we we don't want to be judged we fear that we have to filter ourselves which is why social media is such a toxic place i just want to be unapologetically myself now and and if people don't like that or don't want to hear my story I don't care because I've had to keep that story to myself for so long and if it upsets family members, if it upsets people, there will be people it doesn't upset and that it helps and they're the people I'm interested in. It's so interesting because I, I see it, I, you know, I frame a lot of the work that I do in a similar vein, you know, just hearing people's stories in the hope that, or people sharing their stories on platforms like this, my podcast. Um, will inspire, motivate other people. I, I wonder, and you tell me this because you're speaking to lots of women who have empowered themselves, I wonder how much age is a factor, you know, age and wisdom. You know, it, it feels to me as I've listened to you that there were certain points of your life where you were not in control of it in the way that you could have been in control of it like you know now but that comes with wisdom right and age and I suppose during that journey you've reached a point in your life and women and men at a certain age reach a point in their life where they can be more empowered to be the person that they've always been but now they can show or they're not wanting or don't care about people judging um, who they are what they look like what they do and that comes with age whereas Lots of young women are still being influenced by social media, as are young men. And and do you find that in in the networks that 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 your business is is working with that the, the women who have reached that point where they can embrace who they are and be who they want to be, given the challenges that women face in the workforce um, in previous years, do you find that that's one of the biggest factors? Age, wisdom, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh... I think my youngest member is like 28, you know, and that's something I actively want to change. I would love to get a younger demographic of audience in, into the business. But you're exactly right. I think societal pressure, stigma on what the younger generation should be like, um, I guess a, a relatability to, to somebody like myself talking about who I am now. It's important that I talk about the person I was when I was younger, when I didn't know who I was and some of the, you know, social media wasn't around it like it is today. You know, there was no Facebook or anything in the, the 80s and 90s. But in me sharing those experiences that I had without social media, I was still almost filtering myself, but without it being in the digital era. And if I can bridge that gap in allowing young women to come forward and talk about their story from a younger age, maybe it wouldn't have taken me until my late 30s to share my story. And I think if I, in doing the small bit of work I am with this girl and allowing to create this space where younger girls can come and feel they're, they're safe, they're not judged, and talk about things you know that they've witnessed through their upbringing or experienced through their upbringing, that paves the way for the generations of my children and, and how their minds are shaped to be more open. It'd be great to live in a world where we didn't even have these stories, but unfortunately we do. Absolutely, so. we do. What What does second chance mean to you? Second chance for me is me allowing myself to be me. And I think we've, we've just touched upon this. I think um, I've lived my life as somebody else with, with a, a zip over my mouth for so long. And my second chance for me now is that I am going to use my voice as my superpower and I am going to get my voice heard. Um, I don't want to be silenced anymore. I'm not ashamed of anything I've shared. Um, if I can continue to do that into my 40s, 50s and beyond, I'm on a mission-led 
business now and I'm not here to make money as such I'd, I'd like to I've got bills to pay but for me it's it's about creating something that's a legacy that's what my, my mission is so that second chance for me is this girl it, it's a, it was a chance for me to step away from the career I had and know that I can use what has been a horrible horrible experience in my life for for good it's so interesting because when, when I reflect on what we've talked about today and the challenges that you've overcome there are a number of areas, isn't there, in your life, whether it's the child abuse, whether it's the addiction, the, the persona that you created for yourself. How, how do you juggle that? I mean, notwithstanding you're a, a, a mum with young kids that you've got to also nappy change and do all those things that require a lot of attention every day, even with a partner, and you share that. I mean, how do you how do you do that? I just, I just wonder how you do that. How you find the space to juggle all the things that you need to juggle as a, as a woman in this day and age. Yeah, I actually got asked that yesterday by a lady who was on one of my networking sessions. I was referred to as an Amazon warrior princess. <laughs> great name. <laughs> That's great. I'll take that. Um, my coping mechanism, Raphael, is to be busy. I find that I'm not yet at a space with my own mental headspace that I can sit and be fully happy. I'm still on that journey and I don't think I'll ever be clear of, of my experiences and I almost don't want to be because they're part of who I am. Being busy for me is my coping mechanism and I enjoy pressure. Sometimes when I, I don't have anything in my diary and I am quiet, that would have been the time that I would have had my what I call my ticks to want to get in my car and go to the casino so I'm learning now how to fill my time with more wellness based things so doing yoga meditation more um spending time planning on my business um yeah the I, I do struggle a little still with with that time and I think that from a, a gambling addiction perspective is definitely something I will touch point on when I move forward with with my projects that I'm going to be working through um is to help women to keep busy um so yeah as, as much as people see that as a is how do you juggle everything it actually is what is my coping mechanism and you talked earlier about counseling that you you had counseling how helpful did you find that and are you still having counselling and how important is that to to help men and women overcome some of the challenges that they face? So I put myself onto a counselling programme for my trauma when I was 37 um, and I found it useful to an extent. I felt that I had to filter myself considerably because of it was lockdown at the time and it was... Um, yeah, it was just about the period when lockdown came. So I was supposed to have had face-to-face -face sessions and they became online. One of the biggest challenges I found with the counselling is that the other ladies that were on the session with me were all in a very different headspace to me. So there were ladies that like hadn't got out of bed in 10 years. There was ladies that were coming onto the sessions. They were drug dependent. I was coming across like I was fine because I was leading a relatively normal life and I found that really challenging because I felt like I was being judged, that actually my story wasn't as serious as the others because they physically looked different. So personally, I don't think it really helped me. I found my own self-development and my own journey more empowering than going through a clinical route. Maybe that was always in the back of my mind with this girl though because in order for me to create that non-clinical space and give women the chance to just talk um, is something I never had. 
And I suppose that's, you know, that's another interesting point because, you know, counselling will work for some people. You mentioned people not getting out of bed for 10 years. They might need that. It sounds like your, you know, strength of character came from your experiences. You've turned all those negatives into a positive one because you've embraced them. And I am a strong believer that if you embrace the negatives in your life and use it, to better yourself, your understanding, your learning, your projection of, of what you want to do next. It stands you in a, in a good position. I think when you try and hide those things, then it becomes a weight around, you, you, you know, your being able to take a step forward. Bianca, thank you so much for, for, for being so open and candid about, about your life's journey. And I hope that people listening to this can be inspired by the, the challenges you've overcome and the direction you've taken your life in and the honesty with which you share your story, um, especially, you know, being prepared to, to share with my listeners your gambling addiction and your recognition that it is a problem for, for more women than, than society itself wants to, to recognise and, and all power to you for wanting to go out there and make people aware, more aware of, of that problem and empower other people, women, to come forward and talk about that problem so more can be done to, to recognise it and address that problem. Is there anything you want to say before we bring this to a close? No, I just want to say um, thank you because I've never told that chapter. I call it chapter two for some reason. Chapter two is the gambling side. Chapter one was the childhood side. And I think anybody sharing... A story that is relevant in their adult life there's a huge amount of bravery in that as much as there is with people sharing their childhood it's the here and now that I'm still working on and that part of that is something that's going to be a continual development and I think for people to reach out to me if they want to talk about that confidentially I absolutely would love to hear it and from a selfish perspective for my own ongoing therapy as well because I found my this girl journey so enlightening by actually listening to other women and knowing that you're not alone um so thank you for allowing me to share this story on your platform I appreciate it and just on this this girl um if if women listening to this young and old I say old young and middle-aged and old if they do want to get involved, how can they? How can they kind of reach out to you if they've got a story they want to share or just connect and network with the women in your network so they can learn or, or inspire and motivate others? What, what should they do? Thank you. Um, they can go onto my website, which is thisgirlcommunity.com. Um, and I am also on Instagram as well, at This Girl Community. Um, there's lots of inspiring stories about the ladies in our, our network. Um, they can join any of our sessions and book, book onto any of them via the website. Um, and yeah, if they wanted to reach out, they can click on the Contact Us page and that'll come straight through to myself as well. And, and, and as I say that, I'm also thinking there's lots of male listeners. Are men excluded from the girl network? No, no. So we, we don't exclude men from this girl. What we do say is that we're very active in wanting to support men who have any challenges with females in their life that they want to talk about. So we don't directly help the mental health of men per se, but I do work with an amazing company that help that that side of it. But if you're a male and you have challenges with any female in your 
family, your partner, etc., then absolutely, you know, come along and we'll be more than happy to talk to you and share our wisdom. <laughs> and I'm smiling at this point because I can imagine your phones are going to be inundated or messages from men sort of saying, oh, well, there's this woman in my life who I, etc., etc. <laughs> Bianca, thank you so much thank for joining you. me and sharing your story today. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Cheers. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Second Chance Podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. You can find the video of this interview on our YouTube channel at Second Chance Podcast, where you can also subscribe to be notified of new episodes. Please share our episodes with your friends, your family and colleagues and follow us on YouTube and your preferred podcast platform for updates on new episodes. Your feedback is also crucial to the growth of our podcast, so please rate and review our episodes and let us know your thoughts in the comments section. We rely on several talented individuals and teams to bring this podcast to life. Sophie Warner, Lewis Hunt and Logan Martin assist create our content. Audio Avalanche handles audio editing. J-Row Productions creates original music. Studio Minerva designs our eye-catching covers. Social Media Marketing Agency, Scribble, manages and creates our social media content. Kim Collicut oversees episode production with me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Thanks for tuning in. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.